Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello, the Empire of Mali flourished during the European Middle Ages. It was larger than any empire in West Africa before or since and drew its power from what were then the largest gold mines in the world. Europeans knew relatively little of Mali, relying on Arab and Berber traders to bring the gold north over the Sahara. There was closer contact between Mali and Muslim culture, as Mali's rulers converted to Islam. When the 10th emperor, Mansa Musa, made the pilgrimage to Mecca in the 14th century, he brought so much gold, he lowered its value in Cairo. A sometimes being called the richest man the world has ever known. Knowledge of Mali's empire today, though, is hard won. Victorian explorers assumed its physical remains, like the great mosque of Jen, were signs of Arab settlement. What we know now has been pieced together from archaeology, from epic poems and from the writings of Islamic scholars and geographers. With me to discuss the Empire of Mali are Amira Benison, reader in the history of culture of the Maghreb at the University of Cambridge, Kevin MacDonald, professor of African archaeology and chair of the African Studies Programme at University College London, and Marie Rodet, senior lecturer in the history of Africa at SOAS. Amira Benison, who are the people living in the North, Af- North Africa in this time, from the 12th to the 16th centuries? Um, in the 12th century, Northern Africa was inhabited by uh, peoples who we collectively call the Berbers. Uh, there'd also been a, uh, a fair degree of Arab settlement, um, but mostly in towns. So when we're talking about the majority of the inhabitants of North African, we are talking about uh, Berber populations from uh, what's now Libya across through Tunisia, Algeria and Morocco. And in the 12th century, a lot of North Africa was actually ruled by um, the Almohad Empire, which was an empire founded by Berbers from the High Atlas Mountain in what's now southern Morocco. Was there any sense they had settlements, the Berbers? They weren't nomadic? The Berbers uh, is a catch-all term for the entire population. So they were a tribal people for the most part, um, but some of them were sedentary villagers, some of them were nomads... Those who lived on the edge of the Sahara were often nomadic just because of the environment in which they lived. And uh, a fair number of them are the, were the so-called uh, Melethamun, the veiled Berbers of the desert, who were very involved in the trade across the Sahara and um, connecting North Africa to West Africa. So can you, well, let's talk about that, because that, that's the most important thing really that we're getting at here. What was leading them to make the difficult journey across the Sahara to this region of West Africa, Empire Mali, as we're going to come to know it? Well, th- this is an interesting topic, and obviously gold is the most glamorous commodity which was transported backwards and forwards across the desert. Uh, Can you give us some idea of the gold? Because it's the biggest gold provider until South Africa comes along and America comes along. The biggest gold provider in the world by far. But can you be better than by far? (laughs) I'm not sure that I can be better than by far, actually. You know, we're talking about medieval history here, so it is very difficult to pinpoint amounts. But the majority of the gold currency um, in North Africa from the 11th century on came from... West Africa. So if you think of the the gold currency of the Almoravid Empire in the 11th century, which became generalised throughout the the Mediterranean, uh, that was all West African gold. So it was a very substantial proportion of gold coming into northern Africa, moving across to the Middle East and also then filtering up to Europe. Up to, across the Mediterranean into yes, Europe. Yes, yes. 
And so the m most of these journeys across the Sahara, which was, has been quite risky, were to get the gold. Well, gold is only one element in the trade. Um, the trade actually probably starts as a more routine kind of trade. Um, one of the uh, items that was uh, required in West Africa was salt. And you could dig rock salt from mines in the Sahara Desert, um, located at places like Aulil or Tagaza. And it was because the West Africans wanted the salt that they were exchanging it for gold. Uh, slaves is another commodity moving across the Sahara. Um, and the Berbers themselves also, on a much more mundane level, needed grain because they lived in an environment where they lived primarily off animal products, dairy products and meat, so they needed grain. So there are a number of different commodities in the trade, but gold is a very important one of those commodities. So this is a quite busy and productive, and in looking back at it in its own, an efficient series of trade routes between North Africa across the desert to West Africa. Yes, it's, it's, it's a slowly building trade route. Um, it probably did exist in pre-Islamic times, but it flourishes particularly from the 8th and the 9th century onwards, uh, directed by various Berber tribes, many of whom follow the Kharijite sect of Islam, and they develop these routes, which do indeed become really quite busy, um, particularly by the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries and then into the 14th uh, where they seem to be sort of burgeoning with huge caravans moving backwards and forwards not just to North Africa but also to the, the, the uh, to Egypt which um, is you know moving in towards the Middle East. Kevin MacDonald, Sundiata is identified as the first emperor of Mali from about 1235 AD. Can you tell us something about him? Well, Sunjada was a heroic figure. He was at once a, a mythic and historic figure. You could sort of see him as uh, the West African equivalent of King Arthur or something like, something like that. Uh, in terms of historical information, the first evidence that we have is from about 100 years after his death, or a little bit more than that, uh, from Ibn Khaldun, uh, who tells us basically just three things, well, maybe four. First, that he was the greatest king of Mali, Second, that he conquered Soso, which was a, a, a kingdom which existed before Mali. Third, that he reigned for 25 years. And then, of course, it gives his name, which he gives as Mari Jata, which means, well, Mari means royal or king, and Jata derives from the word lion. So in the, that sense, Sunjata is the original lion king. Uh, but also, of course, he's known as Sunjata, and in that case, the Sun is a diminutive of his mother's name, uh, Sugalon. Now, there was this, there's the epic of Sunjata. Can you give us a brief resume of an epic? Is that possible? I'm yes, sure it it's is. Yes, it's something that could be performed over a, an entire day. So it's, it's, it, but it basically, it's, it consists of uh, four story cycles. The first is about his mother, uh, who is a woman who's also known as the Buffalo Woman, who uh, is, is humpbacked and probably past childbearing age, but who prophecy says will bear the greatest of all kings. And she is brought by two hunters back to the king of a kingdom called uh, Kuri, also known as Mandan. Uh, and uh, and uh, he, the king agrees to take her as one of his wives. Uh, and she has a child, uh, Sunjata. And uh, so that takes us to the second cycle of all of this, which is Sunjata's youth. He is born disabled. He can't walk. He refuses to speak. And it's only really through the grief of his mother over all of this sort of uh, disappointment that he 
stands heroically with the help of a, of a uh, an iron rod and then grows on to have great strength, enough to uproot a baobab tree. And if you know what a baobab tree is, it's the largest of West African trees, uh, and offer its leaves to his mother. He becomes a great hunter and a heroic figure uh, in this kingdom. Uh, but this leads to a lot of jealousy. So that takes us to the third part of all of this, where he is forced to go into exile uh, because of after the death of his father, for fear that, that he'll be murdered. Uh, he succeeds in his exile. He becomes almost the adopted son of a, a king of another kingdom, Mema, when he is called back home by the fact that his, his, his ancestral kingdom has been taken over by this evil sorceress figure known as Sumanguru, who he comes back, learns the magical weakness of, and conquers the Battle of Karina, becoming the first emperor of Mali. And then goes on to become the great emperor and extends the empire massively. How much of this do you believe to be true? The core uh, that Sunjata existed, that he was the first emperor, I believe to be true. The Elements of the Sunjata legend or epic uh, could have been uh, combined from many different traditional tales. But I think, you know, there, is a, there are elements of truth, and in terms of place names uh, in the different bits of this epic as related, there are also interesting hints as to where we might seek for material evidence. We might come back to evidence later. In fact, we certainly come back to evidence later. Uh, Mary Roday, it's said that Tunjata created what's known as the Magna Carta of Mali. What's this? Well, uh, it's um, what has been uh, found out recently. It's it's actually a text uh, which is also called Kuru Kanfuga, uh, but it's rather um, a recent discovery. Uh, what do you mean by recent? Well, uh, the text was uh, written, put down on uh, as a script in, in the late 1990s, officially, right. for the first time. Uh, you have traces of this text, uh, not really a text, but the fact that Sundiata, it's claimed in the epic that Sundiata organized a great assembly following his, the Battle of Krina and when he won to organize the empire. Uh, you have traces of these uh, facts uh, in one of the first written epic uh, uh, written by uh, um, sorry uh, by Jibril Tamsianyan, who is uh, uh, a Guinean scholar uh, in the 60s. Um, but it's really in the 90s that it came to uh, the form we know today, uh, which became then in 2009 uh, World Heritage in what Tangible. What does it do? What is, sorry, the form it is today, what does it say? Uh, it's... It, uh, scholars claim scholars from Mali and and Guinea claim it's a kind of constitution of uh, a, a sort, as you said, a sort of Magna Carta dating back to the medieval times. So they say it's Magna Carta. I'm just repeating what they say. Yeah. What sort of what sort of things does it say the, though in, in the detail? Can you give us two or three yeah, clauses? It it, um, it organizes. Uh, the different clans in in the empire, social relations, and uh, the rules of uh, of the different clans and castes in in the empire. Um, some uh, scholars uh, claim that it's a 
kind of human rights charter, uh, but there, there is it's a disputed text actually, and some scholars say even claim it's it might be uh, invention of tradition or reinvention, and that it's a combination of several traditions and which were made a text at a very late stage. When is it? When is it claimed that it was originally written? Uh, well, there is also dispute about the date, actually. Can you give uh, but, uh, some idea of what's um, going on here? So um, the, the text as intangible heritage has been registered for 1236. But uh, uh, other scholars, Balian scholars, claim that there was a preceding text, uh, a, a hunter horse, uh, which is called the Mandate Charter. Uh, so even before 1236? Yeah, uh, a few days before, 1222. But it's kind of interesting that they have so certain dates, because when we know uh, about the process of retrieving uh, medieval history, how it is hard to find really detailed uh, dates. Uh, it's interesting that you have uh, nowadays scholars from Mali and Guinea who are so sure about these certain dates. Well, how did they get to 1236? That's a very specific date. Did, did, can they carbon test the paper or is there any other co- corroborating record? What's well, that, how, where does that date come from? Uh, it comes from uh, when uh, when uh, Sundiata won the Battle of Krina and following uh, the battle, it's, uh, it's when he organizes big assembly with all the clans and, uh, cl- and um, uh, try to organize uh, the, the empire, basically. Um, so it's, again, it's a date. We are not sure exactly where it comes from, but it's, bas- it's based mainly on oral traditions. Thank you. Amira, how far and how quickly did Islam spread into the land controlled by Sundiata? It spread by trade, the Berbers brought it, but how fast and when and what happened? Um, Well, that's a very long story that predates the era of Sundiata himself. Um, The Empire of Mali was preceded by uh, the Empire of Ghana and there were certainly Islamic influences within Ghana, um, and this is ancient Ghana, so it's not located in the same place as the modern country of Ghana. It's much further north um, in the in the Sahara, uh, the southern Sahara. Um, and the, Islam was really conveyed by the traders. Berber traders from North Africa began to cross the Sahara for trading purposes. They were allowed to establish settlements in sub-Saharan African towns as trading colonies and by those means their knowledge, their learning, their religion began to sort of percolate slightly among the pagan population. It wasn't a particularly proselytising religion, Islam, but but, but the, we know that various people took it up. Why did they take it up? Um, it's difficult to say exactly why people took up Islam. Um, it had a certain appeal as... Um, a religion with writing. Um, Arabic was the the language used by the Berber traders and obviously it's a written language. Um, So it is um, a a machine for literacy, if you like. So it's appealing in that sense. And you do see Muslims who are literate and can write who begin to be employed by pagan kings 
as scribes, as advisors, through um, their literacy. It also has a quite um, established set of rules for trading and for fair contracts, which would also make it appealing for merchants, possibly. Because the generality of, of faiths at that time were animistic, weren't they? Yes, West Africa is uh, an, um, an area we would call pagan in inverted commas with animist um, beliefs of various kinds, ancestor cults, um, which continue to be very important all through this period. And um, although Islam spreads, and um, the, the feature perhaps we should point out for Mali is that it's, it's with the Malian emperors that you begin to see important rulers converting to Islam as well. Uh, Kevin MacDonald, after achieved the heroic task of, of reduced epic, um, uh, what can you give us some idea of the range of the empire in the time uh, time of its great greatness? Right, um, as it as it grew, uh, it didn't reach its apogee under Sanjata. It reached its apogee later. One 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 could say under Mansa Musa, who we'll talk about later. Uh, Can you give us some idea of dates? By, the, by, 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 by around 1300, mm. uh, 1320, that sort of time, this is when Mali is at its, is at its height. Mm. And it stretches from the Atlantic, you know, what is now Senegal, all the way past the Niger Bend. And uh, so what would be the border today between Mali and Niger, say? And it's as it expands in this, uh, as it sort of exists in this uh, large 2,000-kilometer swathe, uh, east to west, so Western it, Europe size. Yes, it's it's also it's also uh, cutting across a number of different layers of environment. So in the north, obviously, you have the Sahara, and then you have these sort of semi-arid grasslands, and the, the southern edge of Mali would be uh, just in sort of the savanna forest area. Do we know how that was organised, Kevin? Now, was it organised, was it, was it rule by sending the troops in and what sort of troops were there? Or was it a confederate? What happened? There, there's, a, there's a combination, I think. I mean, we're still reconstructing this. But I think, as usual, there's always a core of empire. And here you have uh, governors, regional governors who are referred to as Masa, who could be installed in, in key towns to, to govern regions and, and levy tribute or taxes. And this would be at the core of Mali. But abutting Mali all the way around are all of these semi-autonomous kingdoms who owe their loyalty and pay tribute to the center. And they're part of the empire. They're sort of sub-kings to the emperor. So this could include things, uh, as we'll talk about later, like Songhai, which is at the eastern extent of Mali. So it's either they send their man in to collect the taxes, and that's a key thing, they want the taxes, or they make associations, leave the people more or less as they are, and let them collect the taxes, but they want tributes paid to them. Absolutely. And, of course, if things go wrong, then you send in the army. What sort of army was it? Well, it's, it's supposed to be an army that would have included an element of, of cavalry uh, and also archers. Uh, so uh, so it, these would be relatively small armies, I think, by you know, modern standards, thousands or at most tens of thousands. But much the same as armies in medieval Europe. Though, in yes. Marie Rode, what reports are Arabic writers bringing back from Mali and when are they reporting back? 
Well, the first Arabic writers to just mention this part of, of West Africa uh, date back to the 8th and 10th century, so describing uh, a few towns of uh, the Ghana Empire, but most of them never went there. The very first uh, Arabic writer who went to uh, West Africa at the time of the Mali Empire, is Ibn Battuta, who uh, spent uh, almost three months in the capital city of Mali in uh, between 1352 and 1353. So he's within, he's within touch of the great days, isn't he? Yeah, it's just after after uh, Sundiata's mm. death. Uh, it's at the time uh, of uh, um, Mansa Suleiman who is uh, the follower even of, uh, of Mansa Musa. Um, so he describes at length in his uh, writing uh, the, the customs, the rituals, and how he met the king, and his connection with uh, local Arabic traders and councillors at uh, the court. Uh, but he also comes with his own biases from North Africa as an Arabic Muslim. Uh, and um, what, what he's very interested in is to what extent uh, the people of Mali follow uh, uh, Arabic uh, rules and the, um, uh, the Muslim, uh, the Islamic religion. So it's a way he approaches mostly um, this um, this people, and uh, so he goes at length in praising some parts of their customs as as long as they are close to the way uh, Islam is performed in, in North Africa, but at the same time criticizing very heavily uh, what he considers pagan rituals. Do you have an impression when you read that that this is a rich, well-developed, uh, civilized society? Well, as I said, uh, it's uh, the way the document is written uh, is uh, full of biases. So it's hard to to know uh, what is really historical facts, uh, what, what is tangible. But at the same time, um, he. he there is a kind of political purpose uh, behind this text because it's for Ibn Battuta, to my knowledge, it was important to prove the extent to what Islam was performed outside uh, North Africa and to prove that Islam was almost as strong outside North Africa as it was in, in North Africa at the time. I see. Amira Benison. Uh, yes, I mean, I just wanted to add to that, really, that, I mean, one of the things that Ibn Battuta picks up on in terms of sort of the organisation is that the very um, efficient organisation of justice within the parts of Mali through which he travels and the fact that people do get redress from wrongs and that that is mediated through the representatives of the emperor of Mali. So he does see an organisation and a structure and a developed uh, empire. Let's move on to... Mansa Musa, this supposed to be the richest man in the world and all that stuff. Um, the tenth emperor, he made a Hajj, a pilgrimage to Mecca um, in the 1320s. Um, can you tell us something about that and what impression it had? 
Because that was widely reported. There were maps of him all over the place. We were on rather more solid ground here. Yeah, we're on slightly more solid ground with the pilgrimage of uh, Mansa Musa in 1324 to 5. Once West Africans started to... um, convert to Islam, to perform the pilgrimage was something increasing numbers wanted to do. And there are a number of emperors who appear to have made the pilgrimage, but by far the most famous is Mansa Musa. Um, He travelled across the desert, um, reputedly with a huge caravan of slaves, servants, 80 to 100 loads of gold, um, and he made his way through to Egypt, which was ruled by the Mamluks at that time, and made a great impression. We don't have eyewitness reports as such, but we have um, the account written by Al-Umari, which was based on speaking to people who had seen Mansa Musa and his entourage in Cairo. And this is, of course, the phase where um, the flooding of the Egyptian market with gold is cited as a possible reason for the depreciation in the metals value in the in the Middle East and Mediterranean at that moment. So he swept on there, and 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 he, he must have been. Can you just give us a bit more of this because we've got real stuff on this? Yes, yeah. No, I mean it. it it's a fascinating. Do we know how many hundreds? We, we this five hundred slaves are cited. Each one is supposed to be carrying a gold stick. Is that true? And what did he, I mean, that sort of stuff. Let, let's just say numbers in medieval Arabic chronicles need to be taken with a, a very big pinch of salt. So I wouldn't say that 500 slaves with gold, solid gold staffs isn't necessarily true, but obviously he had a large number of slaves with gold or gilted equipment. He also had a lot of female slaves with him. But, but some of the other things that were noticed relate to this idea of West Africa as actually being quite civilised. The fact that his entourage, although naive about Egypt, were very polite. They were very well dressed. They're described as sort of clean, behaving appropriately and um, also being very pious. And one of the major things that Mansa Musa wanted to do during the pilgrimage appears to be to recruit religious scholars and learned personnel to take with him back to Mali. Numbers are uh, very difficult in all chronicles, aren't they? Yes, I mean, from, they are. From the Old Testament to yeah. maybe the chronicles of today. Yes, yes. Kevin, you want to come in? Kevin McDonald. Mm-hmm. No, one of one of these learned people uh, who notionally Mansa Musa brings back with him is this Andalusian, this Spanish uh, architect by the name of Al Sahili. And this uh, plugs into the story that on his return from the Hajj, on every Friday when he stopped, he would order for a mosque to be built. And there are a number of uh, locations in Mali where it's said that there were these mosques built by Mansa Musa, including in Gao and Timbuktu and uh, and Jene. Of course, the only one of these that's still standing is the the mosque of uh, Jinjiraber in Timbuktu. But the uh, mosque of Jene, uh, the current mosque, the World Heritage Site, which was built in 1907, uh, is standing on the foundations of what might have been Mansa Musa's mosque. This is the the largest mosque in Mali. Its foundation is about 75 metres by 75 metres. It's a huge structure. Did he build all these mosques or did they perish because of the materials that were used? Well, mud, uh, earth and architecture is surprisingly robust as long as you uh, keep it replastered 
every year, uh, it's possible for structures, or at least the core of structures, to endure for a long time. There are standing structures in Mali that probably date back to the 14th century. So he... But you didn't build one every Friday, by the look of it. I think that might be an exaggeration. Yes, one of them. Um, You've mentioned Timbuktu, which is an irresistible name. It's one of the great names, isn't it, Timbuktu? Let's pass over that childhood infatuation with Timbuktu. Mario Rode, um, tell us about Timbuktu. How did it develop under the empire and why is it important? Well, Timbuktu probably uh, originated in the 12th century as a trade, uh, a trade outpost. It was originally rather a temporary dwelling, but because of its strategic uh, position at the crossroad between the Sahara and the Sahel and on the Niger River. So it was on, uh, on the edge of the desert. Yeah, the south, exactly. And then on beside a river. So it's a good trade crossing, yes. Exactly. Yes. So it developed soon after as a main trading uh, dwelling, permanent dwelling, attracting traders from North Africa and but also uh, from, from, from the Sahel. And uh, it was included in, in the Mali Empire. Higher from the 13th century, and it's from there that it developed slowly into what we know today of Timbuktu as a great uh, trade and uh, scholarly uh, um, uh, town. But it's it's actually following. Excuse me, sorry. Why did it develop into a scholarly town? Well, actually, it's after the Mali Empire that it really developed into yeah. a scholarly town uh, with, uh, under the Songhai Empire, especially with uh, Askia Mohammed, who was uh, the second uh, king of Songhai. So it's the Songhais who took over the... the yeah, exactly. Empire, right? uh, in, in 1468, uh, they took over Timbuktu, and uh, it's Sonny Hali, the, the first king of Songhai, who took over... Timbuktu, and uh, it's from there that they, uh, well, actually the following kings sponsored scholarship and mosques and and probably libraries as well, and you, you, what are, are known as universities like Sankore at the, at the time in the in the 16th century. And the most we know about this city as a burgeoning um, uh, place of scholarship is coming from Leo Africanus, who really uh, related in his writing uh, the wealth of the city in the 16th century. Uh, but uh, it was known before uh, already, uh, uh, we uh, Ibn Battuta uh, visited shortly uh, Timbuktu on his way uh, to to Mali, but it was not the city, burgeoning uh, um, city at the time. It was about ten thousand inhabitants who were under under the Songhai Empire. It went as up to one hundred thousand inhabitants, probably. Ten thousand for any town in those days was quite big, though. But sadly, we leave Timbuktu, Amira. Uh, and how integrated was Mali becoming with a wider Islamic world in the reign of, of Musa? Um, I think, as a result of the performance of pilgrimage by the various Hajj. by the Hajj, yes, Which again, the let's just go back to Mecca. He had a tremendous impression, and he yes. appeared on maps, uh, and so he put he literally put this place on the map because it had been very hard to get to, map. except for these Berber traders, who were then often excluded from the town, so they kept it very secret. They were powerful people in this empire; they didn't want much known about themselves, and they succeeded in that until about now. Uh, I think 
from the late 13th on into the 14th century that the, um, there is much more integration between the Muslim and non-Muslim elements of the population. And there is this interest um, in attracting scholars from the north, but also in sending scholars to be educated in the north. And by the north, um, I mean places like Morocco, which was under the Marina dynasty. So we know there was quite a lot of intellectual traffic between Mali and its cities uh, and uh, Fez in Morocco. And that wasn't one-way traffic. So in addition to the, um, the mercantile traffic going backwards and forwards, which was constantly growing and greatly stimulated by Mansa Musa's spectacular pilgrimage, you also have this constant movement of scholars backwards and forwards. And uh, West Africa in general followed the Sunni Maliki school of law, which was the same as the rest of North Africa. So though it was drawing those two areas together. Uh, Kevin McDonald, what combination of events... We're always asking you the rather big questions, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. What combination of events brought, a, brought the empire down? Well, Mali begins to decline from about 1450... AD onwards, it it exists in some form uh, into the into the seventeenth century. But to begin with, it's, like so many empires, it's simply overextended. There are too many places which could become dissatisfied and could rebel. And the most important of these was the uh, Songa area around modern Gao, uh, and which had a, a, a strong uh, army and which began a series of campaigns from fourteen sixty, striking progressively westwards and taking. More more and more and more of of the empire of Mali away from from the empire's core. Was this done? Was this by conquest, or did peoples these these different uh, areas say join in with him? And in, in the in the Tariqs, they talk about individual military campaigns, which yeah. go in and, and subdue certain right. certain areas. And so, at the same time, uh, although this this the, the effect of of, the, of, of of this is a little bit later. It needs to be remembered that uh, the Atlantic is coming into play, that the Portuguese, who have been trying to short-circuit to get around their, these, uh, the, the Berber intermediaries of trade and things like gold, were trying to get south of the Sahara along the coast and, and thereby to enter into a direct gold trade with the south. And uh, in 1448, they succeed in setting up uh, a trading base at a place called Arguim, uh, which is uh, in the Gulf of Argan uh, today on the southern coast of Mauritania. And they go there beginning to try to engage in a gold trade, but unwittingly also set off uh, the slave trade, which, which ultimately, although initially, is, is very small scale and aimed at bringing captives back to Portugal as agricultural laborers or the Canary Islands, eventually becomes a, this transatlantic tragedy that we know about. The um, Mario Day, uh, the next empire, as uh, as Kevin's mentioned, and, and uh, so all of you actually, was the Songhai. And there were, uh, and that histories began to be written, as I understand, about the Malian Empire about that time. So what, what do the Songhai's history tell us about Mali? Well, uh, as Kevin mentioned, there was a Tariq uh, uh, two tariqs were uh, written uh, in the 17th century. The Tariq al-Sudan of al-Badi uh, was written around 1653-1656. And the second one was a Tariq al-Fatash of Ibn al-Muqtar from uh, 1664. And, well, these Tariq are a specific genre 
uh, which was uh, only developed at the time, and we don't have similar sources for before or after this. But they concentrate mostly on the Songhai Empire. We have some data on the Mali Empire to make connections, actually, between the two empires, but also to its... uh, Actually, it's a historiographical attempt to write a unified narrative of West Africa uh, and West African empires at the time when actually short after the fall of Timbuktu uh, to, uh, in 1591, Timbuktu was taken uh, over by the Almoravid. So there was this attempt by local scholars to write a, history, a long history of the region, uh, maybe in a search of self, self-identity and to, to um, mark themselves uh, uh, as, as a, a historical entity uh, with a long history in comparison with, with uh, the, the, new, the, new, uh, uh, the new power. Uh, Amira Benson, to move... Sorry, I didn't... Yeah, sorry, no, sorry. it's fine. Uh, Amira Benson, move forward. The Europeans, as it came in, let's put it towards the 19th century, the French, and they made a point, as, as, as lots of the uh, West European uh, empires, <laughs> blooming empires, of learning, some of them learning about the place in which they found themselves and trying to draw history of them. What did they discover uh, and how did they interpret it uh, about this? I think there was a, a tendency among not just the British but French um, British and French historians of this region to to see the history of West Africa very much in terms of um, white influence from the north and the exploitation of sub-Saharan black Africa. Um, So, for instance, there were a lot of assumptions about the foundation of towns that this was all achieved by Berbers from the north coming south. Um, that Islam, that literacy, um, that the development of more sophisticated society was all sort of something emanating from the north. But much more recent historiography is is rethinking that and sort of trying to deconstruct those kind of ideas and to to recognise the indigenous contribution and the fact that these empires were built by West Africans themselves and developed by them and that often they were the more powerful partner. Um, and so they had, as you said earlier, they had systems of justice, which were... Uh, yes, they had, exactly. And, and, you know, yeah. they had their own cultures, their own ways of doing things, and uh, it's sort of inappropriate to impose value judgments on whether those were better or worse than ideas emanating from the north. But we still faced with the... Compared with uh, this country, say, just for instance, uh, lack of evidence on paper, written evidence. We are, we are lush in it here. Uh, and it's rather... Sp- sparse that in West Africa. So you turn to the archaeology. But what is the archaeological evidence there? Well, initially, uh, archaeological evidence for the apogee of Mali was relatively elusive. The French, uh, the first French scholars in the area in the 1890s, they first thought that the centre of Mali was more in central Mali, that is to say around uh, what is uh, the town of Segu today. But subsequently, in the 1920s, uh, their view shifted to this place called Nyani, which is just on the Guinea side of the Mali-Guinea border, which was then trumpeted as the capital of Mali, and there were ruins there. And these were excavated in the 1960s. 
but those excavations showed that this was really a later capital uh, at the at the at the end when it was a remnant empire probably in the in the 17th century it's only been since about 2005 uh when fieldwork which i've been conducting with Sedu Kamara from Mali uh has been able to discover in fact that there is an enormous density of ruins and settlement relating to Mali around Segu and in fact probably the French in the 1890s and their initial accounts were right uh and we have massive uh settlements uh around uh around Segu one of them Soratomo uh is uh the second largest known archaeological site in Mali, measuring it at about 75 hectares, which is quite substantial. We're coming to the end now, and there's a question I'd like to ask all of you, if you could be brief, I'm sorry to say, Murray. How much reliance is now being given to oral traditions? Which, which uh, Can you tell us about that? Because there are, seem to be a lot of oral traditions, and what reliance? Historians have traditionally been um, rather snooty about those. What about, what about the present state of play? Yeah, well, uh, for example, the epic of, of Sundiata is still performed nowadays by uh, the so-called griot, who are the specialists of oral tradition in Mali. Uh, it's a specific caste. Uh, they pass down uh, the tradition from generation to generation. It's a very specialist knowledge. So these griots are actually passing down traditions which they say come from the 13th and 14th century. Indeed, but what is important to uh, bear in mind when uh, talking about oral traditions, they are performances. They are addressed to a specific audience. So most, most of the time, actually, they may tell you more about a current situation because uh, uh, the griots, the performers, try to respond and to make the their uh, performance attractive to an audience and there is an interaction. So uh, they adapt their knowledge to specific political issues. So you're rather questioning their historical reliability. What's your summary of the reliability of the oral tradition, Amira? Um, I think an oral tradition gives you insight into uh, individuals who are important, as Kevin had said, perhaps allusion to some places. Um, it also can give you a sense of um, the overall trajectory of a people's history, but it doesn't give you detailed, actual, factual, historical information. But there's a certain reliability about it, do you think? I think there are, there are elements within it, if combined with written texts, can take you forward and then combined with archaeology again, you kind of begin to put a picture of some kind together. Well, thank you very much, Amira Benison, Mary Roday and Kevin MacDonald. If you want to submit an idea for our programme on the 3rd of December, today's the last day to do it. Next week we'll be talking about the maths and computer science problem of P versus NP. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. So when did we leave us? I think I'd just like to comment further about oral tradition. And yeah. I think one thing that we forget is how many different versions of things that there are. There are many different versions of the epic of Sunjata. We have one that's very popular these days, which was sort of uh, novelized by D.T. Nyan in 1960, which has become almost uh, sort of the orthodox version. But uh, as uh, there are many uh, tens of versions of uh, the Sunjata epic. And what's also interesting on those is... The geography of the epic, where it takes place, varies depending on where it's collected. 
so so it's it's uh, this is where the place names come in, and so uh, there is a danger. Just like, for example, with Di Tinyan, he places the capital and the one center of Mali in in Yani. He's from around that area. Uh, but if you look at other versions, they place mm. the capitals elsewhere. And, of course, there were yeah. probably many different capitals and many different centers of power in Mali. And that's the same with uh, the genealogy of Tundiata, which is always recalled as the beginning of the epic. Uh, and you have as many, probably not as many uh, 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 versions of the genealogy of Tundiata as the uh, versions of the epics. But you have depending on the place it was recorded and by whom it was rec uh, recalled and performed, different names in the genealogy, some genealogies insisting on uh, one great ancestor, the first ancestor of, of uh, Sundiata as being Bilal, Bilali, uh, one of the first companions of the prophet Muhammad, who was a black freed a slave and uh, whose uh, descendants will have uh, come to, to West Africa and then uh, founding uh, uh, king, kingdoms and coming down the line to Sundiata. But in some other uh, versions of the epic, Bilali doesn't appear at all uh, because uh, it, it tells you a lot about how Islam also plays a role in uh, recalling the story. And uh, as I was saying earlier in the program, depending on the audience and the situation in which the performance takes place, uh, the performer will try to respond to specific contemporary issues like uh, at some at some point islam becomes an important issue uh, political and religious issue it's when actually uh, bilali will come into the picture for example mm. yeah i mean i think an, another thing that's interesting picking up on that is just the balance between islam and animistic religions within these empires which it's it's difficult to be sure about um, but obviously, uh, the Islamization of West Africa is a very slow and gradual process over many centuries. And still and, ongoing. And still ongoing, exactly. And, you know, it, it goes, you know, so there's still a lot of other beliefs that are very important within these empires. So even though the ruler Mansa Musa and others like him are, are Muslim themselves, culturally, they're also embedded in a different world which they need to respond to as well. I meant to ask you, do we know anything yeah. about the character of Musa? He's described what as being... What sort of man he was like? Upstanding, pretty p pious, very mm. interested in religion. Uh, he seems to be interested in Arabic letters because um, Asahili, who was mentioned in the programme, this um, individual from Granada who, joy who he meets in Cairo and he takes back to Mali, was a poet, an accomplished Arabic poet, you know, whether he was or wasn't involved in building, mm -hmm. there's a much bigger question mark about yeah. whether he was involved in building by mosques. Repute, by repute. But he, well, it's, it's part of linking, you know, making the buildings prestigious, isn't it? Yeah. Linking them to this Granada, you know, the Nusrids of Granada, the Alhambra, and all these sort of imagined wonderful buildings of the Arab Islamic world. But 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 of course the architecture, the Sudanic architectural style, is very different from that. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it very is. innovative, it uh, and, and, and 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 indeed, you know, even copied or or, or transformed by by modern architects. You have skyscrapers yeah, yeah. in or at least you know very tall buildings in, in Bamako today, which are built in the Sudanic 
style or copying the Sudanic style. Well, that's the irony. I mean, obviously, the West Africans were building their own buildings way before this random man, Asali, arrived in West Africa. You know, he's probably got nothing to do with the building, in my view. Do you think there's going to be a sort of uh, growing flow of information and interest in that part of the world? Well, I guess that uh, the fact that the Kurungan Fuga uh, Charter uh, is now uh, tangible world heritage, mm. uh, intangible world heritage, sorry, uh, it, might, it might even attract more young, potentially young scholars and interest in the region. You have uh, also uh, the big South African project in Timbuktu to uh, uh, pre- uh, salvage and preserve uh, uh, the Timbuktu uh, manuscripts. So you have growing interest around this area. We are interrupted for, for yeah. a BBC announcement here. Uh, yeah, this is Simon, the there are many more history and discussion programmes from Radio 4 to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash Radio 4.